0: Welcome to The Broadband Bunch, a podcast about broadband and how it impacts all of us. Join us to learn about the state of the industry and the latest innovations and trends. Connect with the thought leaders, pioneers, and policymakers helping to shape your future through broadband. Join us on Facebook at The Broadband Bunch and see the latest episodes, news, and photos. The Broadband Bunch. As always, sponsored by ETI Software. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Broadband Bunch. I'm Craig Corbin. Thanks for joining us today. Never before has the need for broadband access been more critical. Long gone are the days of blindly viewing internet connectivity as a luxury with our current global health crisis shining a spotlight on the nonstop demand for distance learning, telehealth, and a largely remote workforce, bridging the ever-growing digital divide is essential. Few have done more to positively impact policies and procedures governing federal and state broadband deployment funding programs than our guest today, attorney Tom Cohen, a partner in the law firm of Kelly Drive has 40 years of experience in the communications and telecommunications industry sector. First, as a government policymaker while serving for more than a decade as assistant general counsel for legislation at the Federal Communications Commission and also as senior counsel for the Senate Commerce Committee. Mr. Cohen then was a founder and principal in firms assessing and developing communications and telecommunications properties along with advising businesses. Tom joined Kelly Fry in 2005. Mr. Cohen earned a bachelor's in engineering from the University of Michigan, his juris doctorate from UCLA, and for good measure, a master's of city planning from Cal Berkeley. His practice focuses on providing legal counsel to further the business interests of entities engaged in the provision of wireline and wireless telecommunications, cable, and broadband, including internet services. And he has significant experience in federal and state administrative and legislative advocacy, along with business-related legal matters, including contracts, transactions, and litigations. Tom Cohen, welcome to the Broadband Bunch.
1: Well, thanks, Craig. Great to be with
0: you. I'll tell you, it is such an interesting time, and especially when we talk about what's going on in the world of broadband. You have been so involved for so long, and in addition to what uh, I touched on in the introduction, have done quite a bit of work with an organization, the Fiber Broadband Association, that is extremely active in working to further the opportunities to get fiber to as many people around the country as possible. I know that you uh, have uh, a lot of stories to, to tell from that. Talk about what's top of the uh, the pecking order right now with the Fiber Broadband Association and the work that you do with their policy.
1: Well, the Fiber Broadband Association has done tremendous work since its inception two decades ago in terms of accelerating the deployment of all fiber infrastructure throughout the country. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that we would be having fiber networks pass some 50 million uh, homes today? I mean, it's stunning, and that everybody is talking about, can I get fiber? Uh, It is the most robust, the highest performance, most reliable, Uh, transmission media. I mean, you get fiber connectivity and you're set to access work, the internet, you know, telehealth, everything. And that's why people are clamoring for it.
0: When we talk about the the current situation with the pandemic and how that has created a a new normal with regard to the percentage of the workforce that is uh, now working from home, Uh, the demands on having connectivity are, I think, now greater than ever before. Do you feel that perhaps this is an opportunity, if there were to be a silver lining to this situation, to really focus on getting connectivity to as many Americans as possible?
1: The short answer is yes. Uh, Let's break this down a bit. First of all, over the past decade or so, uh, broadband providers wireline, wireless have invested seven, 800 billion dollars in their networks. I mean, that's just such an enormous amount. And as a result, you know, earlier this year when, everybody went online full-time those networks held up. I mean, just imagine, uh, going back 20 years, if this same pandemic had occurred in 2000. Could we have worked from home, you know, stayed in touch with Zoom like we are, or FaceTime, uh, or anything like that, video chats? Could we have engaged in all the other activities—telehealth, online learning—that we wanted? The answer is no. And so we've had this incredible investment driving us where we are. Yet we know there are gaps we need to fill in. There are uh, many rural areas don't have fiber. We need to get it to them, and the FCC is been heading in that direction and with the new Rural Digital Opportunity Fund auction coming in October, it's going to move us in that direction further. Uh, We know uh, there are issues with online learning uh, and helping particularly low-income students uh, get that type of robust connectivity they need for online learning. And as we see people talk about, are schools going to reopen in the fall, uh, or are they going to go virtual? We know there's going to be a lot of virtual learning. What can we do to get that type of robust connectivity to everybody? So it's it's a real good news story of everything we've done, yet we all know there are gaps we need to fill.
0: You made mention of the fact that, you know, obviously uh, the the connectivity for students is a huge focus. Do you think that perhaps that will spur any potential providers to dip their toe in the water and and to pursue becoming broadband providers?
1: I think uh, we've had the FCC's E-rate program for some time. It goes back to the 96 Telecom Act. And at first it was for simple connectivity, and then the FCC, about five years ago, uh, emphasized fiber connectivity. And so we've gone a long ways at getting schools connected. Now what we need to do is make sure uh, all their students, when they're off-site, are connected. And the easiest way is there are a bunch of providers already out there, wireline providers, that can fill the bill and get that type of connectivity quickly. Um, and so I think what we're talking about, Craig, are enhancements to that program. And how do we drive it uh, to make sure, particularly, again, it's the low-income students, we n- got to make sure we connect.
0: Well, I think key in that discussion is the fact that uh, already we're seeing metrics which show that when there are gaps in the educational opportunity and the uh, access to it, that uh, those students are falling behind in rapid fashion. And quite honestly, there's concern from many corners that uh, some of those students will never be able to, to make up that deficit. That is a huge concern.
1: There's no doubt about it. I mean, there are sort of, uh, there are many sides to this issue. Uh, connectivity is one of them. Uh, figuring out how you teach uh, online and keep students' interests and help them move ahead is another. There are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And, you know, it, you, but at, at the bottom of it all, you need to give them uh, robust connectivity. I mean, that, that's an essential. Without that, you don't get anything else.
0: A moment ago, Tom, you referred to the uh, Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, or RDOF, and uh, one of many government funding opportunities. I know that uh, you have been very involved in working uh, on that uh, for a number of people. Talk a little bit about uh, what RDOF can potentially bring Uh, to the country with regard to opportunities for expanding networks?
1: Well, the FCC, after the National Broadband Plan was adopted some 10 years ago, began to pivot in terms of how they were going to provide support in unserved areas to build more uh, robust broadband service. And they started slowly. Uh, they had you know, focused first on areas without uh, four-in-one broadband. I mean, it's tough to believe that these days. Um, and they originally gave out money some five, six years ago to the larger incumbent carriers, price cap carriers, to build only 10-in-one broadband. And many of us were disappointed in that, particularly for the Fiber Broadband Association. Uh, and over the years, that program has moved along. But at the end of the day, what are you know, those uh, consumers in those areas getting today? Low-speed broadband, inadequate broadband. And many thought they were uh, the FCC was giving out too much money as well. To get low speed broadband. Uh, Fortunately, the FCC has pivoted. And with the Connect America Fund 2 auction, it began to see we could use auctions to give out funding uh, more efficiently. And now, with the new Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, we could also emphasize higher speed, higher performance broadband service. So we can both drive down the price and get better service. And so the auction, which begins the end of October, has real potential to bring all fiber service to millions of additional homes in the country.
0: Mm. When you talk about a fund of better than twenty billion, that is potentially life-changing for for many many Americans.
1: I mean, you're you're talking. The first phase is a little over sixteen billion, um, and it will be. I mean, the FCC and you have to give credit to uh, the chairman uh, Ajit Pai for adopting this new policy. There were. Uh, many members of the United States Senate that encouraged him to do so. And all of a sudden, we've begun to flip and see it's not just uh, giving support out at the lowest price. We also have to give the best performance at the same time. And now what you've seen is uh, legislation, uh, moving through the uh, house right now, uh, that says, you know what we need to do is expand upon the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund program, and the amounts of money are, again, 20 billion, 40 billion, even 80 billion in order to complete this task, or, you know, un- under the uh, Fiber Broadband Association's uh, study, uh, bring it to better than ninety percent of the homes in this country within now you know the next five to ten years. And as you said, that's life changing
0: well, and when you when you have increased that um, that baseline to a bandwidth of uh, twenty five and three, then that makes a difference as well. Um, you You referred to uh, legislation working through Uh, Congress now, and obviously policy uh, concerns uh, have political implications. With the time that you've spent in D.C., what are the biggest challenges that you see for these efforts in moving forward?
1: Well, you know, communications, it may be one of the less politicized areas. It's not to say it isn't, But I think a consensus has developed over many years that the best way to drive broadband and investment in broadband and all fiber networks is to let the private sector uh, move forward with light touch regulation. Um, This has been a policy put in place now it goes back almost 50 years ago that we decided to say, you know what regulation, traditional utility regulation is stifling investment and innovation. And, you know, at the beginning of all of this, Craig, you talk how long I've been doing it. Well, I go back to before AT&T was broken up. <laughs> okay. And I, I participated in that and, uh, you mean what? You I mean, remember we used to get a choice of a uh, a black phone, or uh, maybe they put a different color cover on it. Yes, but that was it. And and what we have found is we by opening the market, particularly facilitating entry, letting people in, we have now in markets multiple choices wireline broadband providers with 5G coming. You're going to have, you know, the mobile providers with higher speed broadband capabilities Uh, and you have other new entrants into this business. I mean, now, you know, they're even talking low earth orbit satellite. And so the idea is to open up the market, let people in light touch regulation, and then... As I say, where the market's not working, fill in those gaps as quickly as you can. And when you ask your question, you're talking about, on the house side, filling in those gaps with uh, you know uh, new support programs that target unserved areas. And quite frankly, uh, these days, 25 and 3 especially from the Fiber Broadband Association's perspective, doesn't cut it.
0: Not even close.
1: Right. And, you know, what we're we're looking for and what the Fiber Broadband Association put on the table is symmetrical gigabit service. And this was in the legislation uh, introduced by Representative uh, Clyburn of South Carolina, And others are beginning to pick it up Uh, in a sense, you know, well, we may talk about speed and alike. What people are really looking for is quality of experience. And that means both downstream and upstream speeds that meet their needs, particularly, you know, as you get multiple devices in a household and multiple devices that need video, you need that capability. Moreover, you need low latency, and you need reliability. Uh, and you know the wonderful thing, again, with all fiber networks, in effect, once you put them in, they're future-proof. You add your electronics, your hardware, you add your software, and the performance capabilities, I don't want to say they're infinite, but boy, they're far beyond even what we think about today. I mean, I just saw the other day, someone's offering, forget gigabit symmetric service, they're often ten gig, offering 10 gig symmetric service. You know, it's Which is incredible.
0: Absolutely. This is the Broadband Bunch. My guest today, Attorney Tom Cohen partner in the law firm of Kelly Dry and also member of the Public Policy Committee for the Piper Broadband Association. Um, I know that there is so much work that is continually going on with the Public Policy Committee there at the FBA. Uh, What are some of the things, in addition to to what we've spoken about uh, to this point, that are on uh, target now for the committee?
1: Well, we are constantly looking to remove barriers to deployment. Uh, We've worked on facilitating access to poles, ducts, and conduit, uh, both in terms of the speed of access and trying to lower the cost. Uh, That becomes material as you build out. Uh, We're trying to do the same thing with uh, public and private right away, speeding access, lowering the cost. You know, it will just facilitate builds as best you can. Uh, then uh, we're working on uh, these subsidy programs to ensure that the targets are more than 25 and 3. You know, the idea again is you, if you spend it once to put in fiber, you don't have to keep coming back. You know, that was the mistake the FCC made in the early Connect America Fund programs. You know, they just incrementally dialed up the performance. And what's happening? We've gotta go back and do it again. So the key is, is do it once, do it right. And so we're working on that. Uh, We also recently proposed uh, to uh, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration an overall fiber acceleration strategy, uh, including this uh, gigabit symmetric target, removing barriers, facilitating entry, which, from fiber broadband associations' uh, viewpoint, means you know where private sector is not building. It isn't just government subsidy, but it is government entry. Uh, You know, we've seen a lot of that where municipalities are saying to the private sector, either you come in or we're going to do it because broadband is essential. We need to get all fiber connectivity. Um, And as well, another target is workforce training and education. Uh, What we're finding is as we rush to build all fiber networks, we need more people out there. Uh, else it becomes a real gap in terms of our ability to accelerate deployment. And I know the uh, president, CEO of Fiber Broadband Association, Lisa Youngers, has made this a focus. There's a new committee focusing on this. Lisa's also on the FCC's uh, Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee on this workforce training issue. So you need to, again, look at what are the barriers out there and let's lower them as quickly as we can.
0: Without question. And we certainly appreciate the leadership that Lisa uh, and her team provide to the association. You made reference to uh, the government subsidies, the programs that are there uh, to uh, potentially fund tremendous expansion of networks. Part of that equation Uh, in many times, is the definition of what is unserved or underserved, and that is dependent upon uh, mapping existing uh, providers, and that's been uh, a concern uh, over the years with regard to the true accuracy of that uh, data. From your perspective, are you beginning to see a move toward methods that might provide even more accuracy than what we've had in the past?
1: Yes, Uh, it's been a real concern, the accuracy of the maps. Uh, The FCC uh, focused on this a year ago by adopting the digital opportunity data collection, which is requiring wireline providers to change from just saying, are they in a census block, uh, to saying, here is the shape file or polygon of my coverage area. Uh, then we added to that, uh, Congress uh, passed legislation, the Broadband Data Act earlier this year, and a month ago the FCC began to implement that, that will build on this polygon coverage and over time create, a national map geolocating uh, every, you know, in a sense, location where broadband can be provided. And then the providers are going to have to submit data uh, based on that. I mean, where exactly are they providing service? Uh, So we're getting there. Uh, It's going to take a little bit of time. I mean, one of the things with the Ardoff auction permitting it to go forward is that these are completely unserved census blocks. So there's really no mapping issue with those. We know they are not served by broadband at speeds of 25 and 3. Now, the other question you asked is, so how do you define unserved? Uh, It once was the area didn't get 4-in-1 broadband. And then it was 10-in-1 broadband. And now it's 25-in-3. And, and the discussion is, is that where we should be today? Should it not be 100-by-20 instead? Right. Um, and the Fiber Broadband Association said, in a sense, cut out the middleman. It's any area that's not getting fiber. You know, let, Let's start really going to what we need instead of some interim technology. What we want to do is get all fiber networks out as far as we can. Um, We're not there yet, but this is a debate about, again, what's unserved. The concept of underserved is a bit squishy about what does that mean, and that's why policymakers have really tried to say, is the area unserved or not, and use that as the basis for moving forward.
0: And a very important um, discussion, obviously, with regard to not only the accuracy, but the speed with which then that can be acted on. Uh, Another topic that uh, is of interest uh, in the industry is that of spectrum allocation and reallocation. And I know that that is uh, something that uh, is of great interest uh, at present. Your thoughts on that topic?
1: I I think, you know, it's always moving slower than the uh, wireless providers want, but the amount of new spectrum the FCC has allocated for commercial use over the past three, four years has been incredibly significant. I mean, the milliwave wave bands, 24, 28, 37, 39, whatever, 42, Uh, I mean, they've got that out there, and they've held the auctions on those. Uh, It's taken a while to get the 3.5 CBRS spectrum out there, but that auction is ongoing right now. Uh, Later this year, they're going to do the uh, very important C-band, 3.7 to almost 4.0 auction, that mid-band spectrum. Uh, so a lot of spectrum is going out the door. Uh, this has been you know, great. It's going to get tougher. I mean, the CBRS spectrum is, uh, in a sense, an experiment because it's spectrum sharing uh, with environmental sensing technology uh, and sort of on-the-fly sharing of spectrum. Uh, we're going to see if it works. Uh, because it's going to be required uh, as you move forward. It's just tough finding new spectrum to um, allocate for commercial use. Now, one critical part of this is there's a real nexus between reallocation or allocation of this spectrum and fiber. Anybody who knows about 5G knows underlying those networks is fiber connectivity. Incredible amount of fiber connectivity, especially as cell sites shrink. You know, we get microcells, small cells for front hall, back hall, mid haul. You're all looking generally at fiber to make it happen. And so as you think about this going forward, there are sort of two fundamental technologies for our future, fiber and 5G. And quite frankly, fiber is the more basic. It's, I mean, providing both the direct connectivity to homes and businesses and institutions and providing the underlying connectivity for wireless service.
0: You know, that's the perfect segue uh, in your answer there, uh, segueing into to 5G and how fiber is so essential uh, as the backbone for everything. And, Uh, Your thoughts with regard to the speed with which 5G will become reality, given the tremendous demand for infrastructure required to deliver it.
1: Well, you've already gotten the major mobile carriers, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, this little lagging there. They are trying to move as quickly as they can. And of course, you know, you... You go to the major markets where the money is first, and even in the major markets, you go to the denser areas where there is a need for that 5G connectivity. Uh, And they're rolling it out. Uh, They will keep pushing it as fast as they can. You know, for a company like Verizon, they have sort of uh, increased their focus on their network as sort of their fundamental Asset, uh, and they understand they want to be the leader here. But AT and T is moving as well, and as I said, T Mobile will follow. Uh, you know, it, it's going to happen. This level of investment, this level of connectivity, uh, and it's going to be, as I say, sort of twinned with fiber because it has to be. And so you can look at Verizon. You know, Verizon several years ago acquired, you know, Exo Communications Fiber. Uh, It it acquired Fiber in Chicago from Wow. Uh, It understands, again, those twin assets, any leading company needs to have to provide service for the future. 5G and Fiber. And uh, we're going to see it, and we're going to see this incredible investment. I mean, You know, Verizon invests close to twenty billion a year in their network. AT and T, the same thing. Uh, They're going to keep it up. They're going to try to pull away from everybody else. And uh, you know, you look again at uh, other providers moving into this market: Comcast, Charter, same sort of attitude. Altice, I just saw, uh, is revving up its, you know, fiber connectivity, and they're moving into uh, wireless service as well. So you can begin, Craig, to see, you know, four, five major league providers sort of busting out of this and moving forward.
0: It will be interesting to see how that transpires and also how uh, uh, quickly we can handle the, the demand for the material required for this phenomenal expansion of of infrastructure. That uh, is something we will eagerly await and watch as it uh, develops. As we begin to wind down uh, our visit, uh, Tom, today, and again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, When you look back over the years of service that uh, you've given to the industry, what would you say has been the most interesting uh, part of your career?
1: Well, I have to say my time in government was incredibly interesting because we were there almost at the beginning of changing from an attitude of we need to regulate to one where competition will best serve consumers' interests. And so at a time, you know, I talked about breaking up AT&T I mean, I was there for, you know, the entry of cable into major urban markets uh, and enabling that to happen in the 1980s. You know, I was just seeing that uh, Reese Schoenfeld just died. He was, you know, the key behind CNN, launched in 1980, 40 years ago, believe it or not. Yes. By satellite. And... That was the beginning that, you know, we began to see, uh, you know, we're moving from three networks, broadcast networks to a plethora of programming with AT&T breakup. Uh, we're moving to entry, you know, with MCI and Sprint and others at that time with cables entry. They started as video providers and less you know than 20 years later, they moved into telecom, and broadband, and began to invest and develop their HFC DOCSIS platforms. And now they're moving into all fiber. Um, and, and so, you know, what has been just so incredible is this opening, giving consumers choice and letting them make the call at the end of the day. You know, as we talked at the beginning, you once had a choice of a black phone or a black phone. It was a dial phone, not even push button. (laughs) Now, no one even thinks about that. And it's enabled companies like, you know, ETIS to flourish as software providers. I mean, we're making this pivot not only to 5G and fiber on sort of a hardware side, but now everybody's talking about open networks you know, for equipment, you know, plug and play equipment, you know, that enables any software to come on top of it. This is just mind boggling, you know, from, from where we came from this change.
0: Quantum leap after quantum leap.
1: Yeah. And, and we're going to keep going. Uh, I mean, it's, the foundation is there uh, and as I say, the players are racing ahead.
0: No doubt. Well, and we appreciate what you have done for so long and continue to do to, to make that uh, a reality. And, uh, Tom, thank you so much also for now being an official member of the Broadband Bunch.
1: Well, Craig, it's been my pleasure, uh, to be with you today. And as you can tell, I enjoy this stuff a lot.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad of that. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Broadband Bunch. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Craig Corbin. Thanks for letting us be a part of your day. We'll see you next time right here on the Broadband Bunch.